Hi, <clears throat> my name is uh, Kurt Squire, and I'm an Associate Professor of Educational Technology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and a co-director of Educational R&D at the Wisconsin Institutes for Discovery, and then finally, uh, co-director of the Games Learning and Society program at the, at the University of Wisconsin. <clears throat> so most of what my research uh, does involves games and learning, um, although today what I want to talk to you about is an exciting new area that we've been looking at around mobile media and learning. And uh, well, I'll end by talking about some things that you can possibly start doing tomorrow if you're interested in getting into this area. So underlying this conversation about um, mobile media and education is a growing um, a schism that we're start starting to see between two things. One, the classroom that we have, and then thoughts about how can we really rewire our classrooms or get them ready for the 21st century, even though that's 10% done by now. <laughs> and then second, what we're seeing happen with mobile media, which is that kids are coming to school, especially college students, but even uh, teenagers in high school, with their own broadband, multimedia, personalized learning devices in their pocket. And so the question um, is, what are we going to do with these things? Now, um, today's generation, if, if you're not familiar with these studies, this comes from the Carnegie Report, is really interesting. So one is that kids have access to mobile media. Um, most teenagers, as you know, own a cell phone. Um, but what's interesting is that most of them are actually uh, accessing the internet in some mobile fashion. Now, this could be taking their iPod Touch and going to a place that's free wireless in order to get access. Could be at the library. But people are starting to access the internet on their own and on the go. It's uh, something that, that teens do on their lives, regardless of what we do in school. Um, so schools are kind of one of the, the last places, it's very interesting, one of the last places you would go to get online, uh, but they can be uh, online anywhere else. Um, in terms of mobile use, they're doing a lot of uh, mobile media consumption. A, a really interesting finding from this report was that uh, kids are doing 11 hours of media consumption a day um, on average, which, which is insane. Um, they're cramming that into seven and a half hours. And when they started looking through the data, they found out this is because people are multitasking uh, for about three to four hours of that time, most of which is coming through mobile devices. So this is um, the kind of the conclusion they came up with. So what are we going to do as educators when we face this future, which is really, I guess, this uh, reality and, and uh, future coming, where every single person's coming to school with a personalized broadband media device in their pocket? What is education going to look like? Um, so right now what we do is we ban them, right? We say, all right, you don't use them. Put them away. You listen to the teacher or whomever. Um, don't, don't follow your own interests. Um, and uh, in fact, this is true of higher education. So this is a headline from the Chronicle about a year and a half ago where law professors started ruling laptops out of the class. They were concerned about control and, and so on. Um, yet what we find is places that do actually encourage it see um, a radical kind of transformation. So this is a uh, picture from the School of Journalism at the University of Missouri, and all they did was they said, we're going to let you have laptops. In fact, we're going to let you write it off and include it in your student loans, and then everyone, I think it was like 98% of the people, chose to buy a laptop. So clearly, um, places where you're, uh, this is being allowed to happen and people are allowed to experiment, it's really taking off, but we, we really have this big cultural uh, divide between those that imagine a world where everyone is internet-enabled and, and thinking like a smart kind of... A, part of a smart mob or a smart being, and those where they want you to be sequestered and, and focusing on the, the speaker at hand. So um, I'm going to argue that, that banning them is unsustainable, as this would suggest, and we need to come up with, with a better plan. Um, so, so how do we actually get into designing environments that, that really try to take advantage of this? <clears throat> uh, well, one of the ways we wanted to go about studying this was find out what happens if we actually give kids iPhones in a well-supported environment. So put them in a classroom where not only are they not going to be banned, so it's okay to get out your cell phone and text someone or maybe even ask to call someone, but it's going to be supported and they're, we're going to try to create cur curricular experiences that, that uh, build on that. So what could, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> 
uh, when we did this, we first imagined actual chaos, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, kids are going to be bringing it out, you know, all times of the day, and it, it's you know, going to go crazy, the classroom control issues. Um, when we looked at what actually happened, um, and this is in two contexts, so I want to um, emphasize the specificity of this. You know, your mileage may vary at your own school. But this was at an alternative and at a home school uh, with 12 to 18 kids. And what we found is that in the alternative school, <clears throat> by and large, there were, there were no incidents. There was only one incident, in fact, of anyone being off task with their cell phone. In fact, they were on task. The teacher um, just wasn't aware of it. But something was interesting. The kids actually had a great interest in etiquette and, and trying to make sense of this uh, disruptive technology and how it was disrupting social norms. So for example, they were wondering, you know, when is it OK to text during a conversation? Um, when should they be putting it away versus listening? So they actually took a lot of interest in this and had a lot of interesting things to say. Um, what surprised us was that they actually reported many, many more pro-social uses than we would have expected. And I'll talk a little bit more about those. Um, the way that we think about those is through something that I'm thinking about in terms of amplification. And this is an image of little Walter, which I've been using just to kind of think through it, because the, something we're seeing is that these really amplify what students can do. They amplify their ability to follow their own interests, their ability to have a voice in the world, and their ab ability to um, direct their own learning. And I'll talk about that a little bit in a second. So again, interests, self, uh, social networks, and then doing their own learning. Um, as an example, this is a student who uh, we walked in on one day who was, uh, we thought, kind of goofing off. She was listening to Pandora. And we said, oh, all right, so you know, tell us what you're doing. And she opened up Pandora and showed how she was listening to her own radio station as well, some radio stations of her friends. Um, she then uh, showed us Soundhound, which is an application she used to look up songs, to find lyrics, to look up guitar tabs she didn't know. Um, and you can see what that looks like. From there, she would go to the ultimateguitar.com, uh, and she would find the guitar tabs to songs that she wanted to learn, she thought were interesting. She then pulled up her guitarist reference. If there was a chord or a scale that she wasn't familiar with, she could get, get it out and look at it and make some notes. She then took those notes, recorded them on the audio pad on her iPhone, where she had notes of the song structures, chord progressions, um, uh, lyrics that she liked. From there, she then went home and she described how she would use this thing as a pocket amplifier. If you know this amp, you can uh, this app application, you can get different amplification sounds. So she would do all of this in preparation for her band practice. And what was interesting to me, again, that we just thought she was kind of goofing off, but this was actually a fairly sophisticated sort of thing. It's the kind of thing I would have killed for her when I was 14 and you know sitting in school and I, I could have been doing this. Um, but again, it's also interesting that, that, so she's got an interest in music, right? This is deepening her interest in music, deepening her interest in guitar. She's able to really take a personalized route for her own learning in a way that's really tough to do in a kind of one teacher, um, you know, 25 kids kind of way. She's then also becoming much more empowered as self. So she's developing a real deep sense of expertise within the kind of songs she likes, the genres she likes. She's getting access to new social networks, whether they be distributed um, uh, distributed communities of musicians or within her own friend group. And then the ultimate upshot of this is that she's getting a really deep kind of learning. Now, just in case you don't think this is just the kids doing this these days, you see this very similar thing with iPhone moms. Uh, I'm an iPhone dad. I've got uh, two young kids at home, and so I'm noticing this thing. that This is a really great sort of invention for any sort of parent on the go, the way you can organize your life in ways that were really difficult to do. Um, so this isn't simply a teen phenomenon. It's happening everywhere. Again, I would argue everywhere except for formalized school. So <laughs> um, that's fine. What other kinds of things did they do? Um, well, I want to talk a little bit about this just because this is, I think, very interesting. Uh, one is that they downloaded a lot of apps. Um, they, on average, in about three weeks, they downloaded about 23, 25 apps. So they were doing three to four per day. Um, the majority were games, but they downloaded apps for the most bizarre things that you could imagine. Um, and, and they're very individualized. 
Um, so the games thing isn't, isn't surprising, given that those are some of the most popular apps on, on the iPhone. But where they actually spent most of their time was online. And so if you look at the, the, the time breakdown, you see about 75% of their time was spent looking up things, information, interacting on Facebook, um, using this as really their own personalized, private bro broadband media uh, internet connection. Um, the Facebook stories were something we were also really worried about. We thought, you know, the last thing I think I needed when I was 14 was constant social awareness of what everyone else was doing and what I should be doing and why I'm not popular enough. But what we saw was that these kids actually, um, and again, this is a very small sample, but it was interesting. They, they looked at it as a way to break down some of the clicks and social orders in school. So they couldn't necessarily talk to someone in the classroom, but they might be able to do it online. Now, granted, there's been a lot of hype and fear about things like Facebook, but we're seeing it's actually much more of a complicated kind of story. When you talk to the kids, this is the kind of story you hear. They say, well, my phone doesn't have the internet, so I can't do anything with it. I can't read books. I can't check the weather. They did actually read books on their iPhones, which, again, I thought was kind of interesting. I can't think, look up things on Google. I can't check Facebook, MySpace, so on and so on and so on. So he's, this has kind of replaced the computer, in particular, I think, due to the private nature of it. The next thing we said was, please don't take this thing away. I want to try to get one for Christmas or the holidays. They were very interested in, in, in maintaining this kind of relationship with their device. Um, uh, one thing also they said, if you have any question, you can pretty much get it instantly because it's already on you. Again, it's very interesting to think about the difference between that and, and a teen who has very little control over their life and where they are and so on. Um, this comes from a parent who actually said, I was surprised at how many times they're actually using it to, to be helpful. Um, they were using to answer a question or participate. Um, as a really good example, one of the families had just moved to town. They were trying to find the airport. They were lost. And um, the kid pulls out their GPS device and helped their mom actually get there on time. Um, and, and for the kid, it was very empowering to say, you know, I can actually contribute and, and be treated as an adult. And the parent kind of liked it. Now, there were a bunch of examples we saw on this, everywhere from kids at work arguing over what's in the McDonald's special sauce and looking it up. And these are all kind of familiar things when you first get it. But for a teenager, it was really empowering for them to be able to um, act in this kind of way. So it was really amplifying their sense of power. Um, so, okay, so I want to transition a little bit to thinking about, so what do we do as designers then if this is the kind of reality that we're living in? Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Neighborhood Game Design Project. Um, it's, um, I'm the PI on this, supported by the MacArthur Foundation, but two of my collaborators are Jim Matthews, who is the teacher and co-designer, and Mark Wagler, who was one of the researchers, and I want to acknowledge their um, work on this. So this context, again, is a semester-long course. This is the course where iPhones were allowed and encouraged. In fact, we gave them to them. Um, the class was called People, Places, and Stories. It was an interdisciplinary class on uh, social studies. Um, the metaphor that the, they, the teachers quickly went to was one of a design studio, and it had three components. The first was doing place-based inquiry with the devices, using them like you might in citizen journalism as a data collection sort of tool. Um, the second was doing game design, getting them into the practice of designing and creating media. And then the third one was an augmented reality game design project I'll talk about that gets them designing stuff for actual authentic consumption and use in the world. So the idea is by the end, you want kids really participating in something socially meaningful. So the place-based inquiry game, um, what this was, was they were, the challenge was that you as kids have been hired by your city planner to go out, investigate your community, and then design a, um, uh, design a presentation for the city planner on what the big issues were in the community. Now, they, they had the kids play three roles. They were an ethnographer, where they would interview uh, people and use the voice recording function. They were photogra photographers, where they would use the um, uh, camera. And then there were, uh, I'm sorry, photographers with the camera, and then geographers, where they would just do mapping on pencil and paper and, and take it back to the classroom. So to a large extent here, they were gathering and, and presenting data, using this and, and using the metaphor of citizen journalism. 
<clears throat> the second thing they did was this game design studio. So the idea is that the teachers te teaching them some of the principles of design, um, getting them to think about doing design journals and critiquing each other's work, um, teaching professional procedures and so on. Um, as a pet from a pedagogical angle, one thing that was really interesting is we thought we could just initially throw them in and have them build a game, but most of them did not have enough strong self-efficacy with technology. They didn't think they could design something. Um, there were a lot of steps between just being where they were and then designing something that's actually of high quality. So this was kind of a, a mini uh, workshop kind of a setting. And then the third aspect, which I'll talk about a little more in depth, is this augmented reality game design. And what this is, is building a game that's deployable on iPads, iPhone, iPhone, um, iPhones, or iPod touches. And the idea is that they wanted to build a game together as a group that would say something about their community. Now, the thing that they chose was this uh, paving of the Middleton bike path, which sounds kind of strange. So they live in this town called Middleton. Um, this is very dark for those who are here. But the, the red A you can see is the school. And you can kind of see a squiggly behind it. This is the bike path that these kids walk on every day. Many of them go out there during lunch. It's kind of their one access to nature in this otherwise very suburban kind of existence. And it really ticked them off that the city decided to pave this thing. So they said, you know, we're going to go out there and we're going to build a game to show people why this was a really bad idea. So this was the kind of community activism that they wanted to do and take on themselves. So augmented reality games, uh, what these are, these are games that are, take place out in the world. So you would go out, if we wanted to build one about Northwestern here, you would go outside in the neighborhood around here. Based on GPS location, you would get access to different uh, resources. So you would get maps showing you where you are, where there's characters, where there's events that you can participate in. Um, you get different uh, documents, you can get files, photographs, videos that are triggered by your location. And then you can have interactions with virtual characters. So a virtual character could hand you a key that would then unlock a new opening to go into a new building and so on. So um, to give you again a little more about the context, so th th this is the game that they decided they wanted to build. So they wanted to get folks who are out there on the bike path, get other kids in their school, give them some iPod touches, let them play, and hopefully become so energized that they would do something about this. Um, the interesting outcome out of this, so they actually built the game and it was uh, a very successful in the teacher's eyes and their eyes. The big thing that was interesting is they said the big walk away was one, that they learned the city wasn't entirely crazy, that it actually made sense due to increasing access and um, particularly for people with physical disabilities and so on. But two, that they actually, um, they got to do something that was real and, and, and made a difference in the world. So when we interviewed them, we thought that you know the, the kind of the gizmos would be the cool thing. You, know, you get to use your phone. And they said, no, their favorite part was actually getting to go out and interview people getting to leave school um, because the fact that they were in a class um, they're in a class actually left their mind completely and where the phones actually came in handy were things like if the teacher had them out during second period they could actually call them find out where they are ask them if they need help and so on so it was kind of a, um, a management device the um, student continues well um, it felt like more like a job I felt important now it's interesting here again that the student is contrasting jobs which are fun and, and important in school which which is not <laughs> Um, which I remember that feeling in high school myself. I think it fit me as a learner. It was just different than a normal class. Um, student, the relationship with the teacher was better because the teacher was kind of a manager or a helper in this case. Um, and then again, it's not like these long classes where they're just talking at you and so on, like, like I'm doing now. Um, again, filled with boring textbooks and worksheets I never pay full attention to. So again, it's, it's a good reminder of what, what reality really is like when, when you're in that situation. Now, what I want to do is say, let's imagine if we had games like this everywhere. Um, imagine if we, uh, when you came to this conference, you pulled out your uh, iPhone or whatever, your portable media device, and you actually got to see various uh, games, tours, interactive experiences about the, the places that you are. And so that's what we're imagining doing. Um, this is a, a game engine called the Arisk engine, which is available, available for free download at that URL there. Um, right now, if you pulled this up in Madison and you went to Madison, this is what you would see. You'd see 
um, a game called Dow Day, which I'll talk about in a second. You'd see a University of Wisconsin tour, um, and you would see um, a couple of other games that are in development. Now, what we're imagining, again, is every place that you go, you could actually go and see what's available there. Uh, imagine you're doing a trip across the United States, perhaps in a family vacation. You could stop, look and see, um, and get out of the car and experience some of what's around you. Um, so again, you could uh, start the game, you pull up the game, you can go to the location, and then go out and actually do it. Um, again, this is called the Eris Game Engine. It's been developed by um, our IT support folks, the University of Wisconsin, with support from the MacArthur Foundation. It is free and available, and my hope is that, if nothing else, folks really think about doing campus tours and things like that at your, at your locations, because it's a real, I think, obvious way to get started thinking about mobile media. To give you a real brief example of some of what we've been doing, this is a game called Dow Day. Um, it takes place on Bascom Hill at the University of Wisconsin. In 1967, there was a very highly publicized uh, set of demonstrations that turned into riots. It was a subject of a Pulitzer Prize-winning book um, that marched into sunlight. So this is a really important local history that very few people around Madison actually know about, particularly the kids. So that same teacher, Jim Matthews, designed a day-long game where you are a journalist studying the events, um, examining primary documents, talking to people who are there, and trying to understand uh, some more about the history that, that, that happened there. Um, students designing games is really much of where my heart is at, so much like the um, the uh, Middleton uh, School example. We've had kids design games about their neighborhoods. This is designed by some fourth and fifth graders in a year-long project by Mark Wagler, and they were designing a, a game about this neighborhood called the Greenbush. Uh, the Greenbush is an area of um, that was um, uh, through the 1900s to about 1960 that was populated by, in, in Madison, populated by African Americans, Jewish Americans, and Italian Americans, and was bulldozed in a very controversial move in the um, late 1960s. And what the kids are doing is going back, looking at signs of what used to be there, um, uh, investigating what happened to those various communities, interviewing them, and then building a game about that particular neighborhood and its history. Um, as this neighbor, neighborhood continues to evolve, there are new and upcoming challenges, and what they want to do is try to learn from the kind of mistakes they made in the past. Um, the students, as they did this, got so kind of energized about it. So they built the game, they have it, it's available for play. Um, they decided they needed to pu pu uh, generate some publicity, so they drafted a city council resolution. They went to the city council. This is uh, Mayor Dave over there, uh, Mayor of Madison. And this is uh, Elena, one of the students who's in fifth grade at that point. And they um, wanted a Greenbush Day. They wanted to have it freely available for play. They got it passed. And part of the resolution says that the city will learn from the mistakes of the Greenbush and never just bulldoze a community again. And that was pretty good. That's uh, kind of what we want to see happen. Um, to show you some other examples of what folks are doing, this is from New Mexico. So our New Mexico friends on the line maybe can uh, look into this. Um, colleagues of mine who are at New Mexico, uh, Julie Sykes and Chris Holden, designed a game that's about uh, it's for Spanish language classes that uses the neighborhoods around um, the university in Albuquerque to teach about uh, Mexican history and Spanish history and language and culture. So the idea is that you know, if you're teaching someone Spanish, you could just go right out into communities and then use that as a context for learning. Um, I've talked a lot about history and social studies, but science is actually one of the most interesting areas of applications for this. Um, this is a game called Saving Lake Wingra that is based in Madison, but it's built on a game built um, based on a game built at MIT by Eric Klopfer and some other colleagues called Environmental Detectives. And what this is a, a kind of a classic mystery style game where, and there's a lot of things you can do with science with this, where there's an environmental problem happening, there's a um, perhaps a, a, a spill, like an oil spill sort of thing. You need to figure out what happened, um, you need to understand the consequences, how to deal with it, and then try to do something to, to make up for the problem. So this is sa saving Lake Winger. It's been used in environmental engineering classes at the college level, but it goes all the way down to the fourth and fifth grade level as, as well. Um, 
So we'll go through that. One of the interesting upshots of this game, so this game was about um, eutrophication in the lakes. And one of the kids, after playing the game, actually wrote a letter to the editor and um, argued that what we should do to help save the lakes in Madison is actually spend money on schools, having them go out and play games about the lakes, which I thought was pretty cool. We did not put him up to this. This is something <laughs> I woke up literally and saw the paper and thought, oh my god, that's got to be one of our kids. And sure enough, it was one of the kids that we used. So closing up here, um, whether or not you're going to run out tomorrow and hand everyone iPod touches or iPhones, um, that's up to you. Um, it's actually not as crazy as, as you might think. Uh, but there are a couple of principles that you can really take away. One is this idea around really designing for interest, knowing that you've got a classroom full of people, all with their own media channel, all doing the things that are interesting to them, um, and you're competing with, with that for your attention, but then you can also hopefully leverage them and build open-ended learning experiences that allow them to pursue those avenues of interest and develop expertise. Um, designing in a way that assumes that kids are online, full access all of the time, 24-7, in your class, out of class, is another kind of design principle. Our teachers use this for, like I said, things like text messaging their kids, reminding them to bring, do their homework. Uh, but there are many other things I think you can do. Um, using it to provide access to mentors and peers, so letting them use their phones to call people outside of school, to call the city planner, um, is an interesting kind of thing that you can do. Um, and then the last part I want to talk about, these last three bullet points, are really, I think, where my heart is, is that now that we have this um, technology that's bringing the outside world into the school, we also have a potential to take school back out into the into the world. So, you know, originally education was um, uh, you know wasn't preparation for life; it was life. To, to quote Dewey, I think the idea that we could actually have uh, learning experiences be about authentic participation in processes that go on outside the school is really where I'm seeing the future of this this media going. So, um, thank you very much, and that's it.